Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you will speak through me to your people. May I decrease that Christ will increase and be magnified even more to the glory of your name. I pray for boldness and clarity of the gospel. May the Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts that will not merely be hearers of this word, but doers of the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In 1994, 800,000 Rwandese were killed in a period of 100 days. Most of the dead were Tutsis, and most of the perpetrators of the violence were Hutus. Fellow countrymen, the scale and speed of the massacre was unprecedented. It was modern-day genocide. For 13 days in April 1994, Reverend Ragwa hid in silence with his family in a small hut on the side of a mountain. The family members had locked themselves in where they were hiding from the marauding Interahamwe, an official group leading the attacks. And with them were their bloodthirsty Hutu neighbors who were hunting them. Some of the, the Hutu neighbors were men with whom his father had often had drinks with after work. In minutes, 43 members of his family were massacred in front of his eyes. Although part of his hand was cut off, Rangwa managed to escape before the assassins set fire to the building. He was 15 and alone in the world. He tried to return to his home, but was once again forced to flee for his life. The Rwandese were largely left alone by the international community. The United Nations troops withdrew after a murder of 10 of the soldiers, claiming that the situation was too risky. Regional governments did not help either. The international community was unwilling and unable to intervene. Rwanda was forsaken. 15-year-old Rangwa was forsaken. 20% of Rwanda's population was decimated in this genocide. You might ask, where was God? Rangwa and many others asked that very question as they hid and barely escaped with their lives. Had God forsaken them? Do you sometimes feel as though forsaken by God? Let's turn to our passage today, Psalms 22, and I'll read from the English Standard Version. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried 
and were rescued. He knew they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. He shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. If you're taking notes, the outline for someone this morning is as follows. Number one, Forsaken. Number two, God's faithfulness. Number three, Christ forsaken, so you're not forsaken. Number four, praise from all nations. Forsaken, God's faithfulness. Christ forsaken, so you're not forsaken. And lastly, praise from all nations. First, Forsaken. King David, the likely author of this psalm, seems to be in deep anguish about impending danger to his very life. It is not clear what the historical context is, 
That is, at what point in David's life this relates to. It is possible, this is when David faces severe persecution from Saul. We don't know. The passage is not explicit. What is clear, nevertheless, is that David cries out in desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David seems forsaken and feels like God is far from saving him. That God does not seem to answer him. David is suffering greatly and yet feels that God is far away. It seems as though David is calling out incessantly. In verse 2, he calls out by day and by night. But there is seeming silence. David is in the promised land, the place of rest. Did you notice at the end of verse 2 that he does not experience rest? But what does David really experience? He is scorned and despised. He is mocked. He is facing strong and determined enemies. He is facing possible physical death. Look at the kind of imagery being used to describe the source of suffering for David in verses 11 to 18. He is alone, weak, and helpless. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. His strength has dried up. David is outnumbered. The enemy is depicted in plurality. Talks of bulls and dogs and evildoers. And the enemy seems to be of great strength. David is surrounded. He is encompassed and seems to have no escape. You know, the Imagery of bulls surrounding him or encompassing him is telling. Now, this is not like the Spanish running of the bulls tradition, where a number of bulls are released on narrow streets and crazy people run in front of them for fun. <laughs> no, that is just crazy. You know, the image that comes to mind, it might not necessarily fit, but I think it will help to clarify this. The image that comes to mind is bullfighting in my community back in Western Kenya. You know, they make bulls smoke stuff. The kind of stuff that is not legal. The kind of stuff that is not good for your health. But they make bulls smoke it. Now, when you look at that bull afterwards, it is big, it is scary, and it is intimidating. Now, when that bull starts to scratch its leg on the ground like that, it means business. You had better not be the object of its wrath. I think this is what David felt, surrounded by a strong enemy intending to hurt or even kill him. But David cries out to an ever-present help in time of need. He cries out to God. Are you experiencing suffering like David? Do you feel surrounded and overwhelmed? Whom do you cry out to? Do you appeal to money for salvation? 
Do you appeal to connections with friends for salvation? Or your own skills and abilities? Or do you just despair and give up? Or do you cry out to God? Even though God seems distant, David's confidence and trust is God's faithfulness. Our second point, God's faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David appeals to the covenant God. He appeals to Yahweh, whom his believing forefathers trusted and were never put to shame. In the midst of great suffering, even when he feels forsaken, David reminds himself of God's faithfulness in the past. He rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them across the Red Sea. He granted them a place of rest and promise in Canaan. He won many victories for his people against strong enemies. But even God's faithfulness also applies to David in his own life. In verses 9, David understands that God is sovereign and has been in charge since he, David, was in his mother's womb. Surely, a God who protects the unborn David and cares for the young David is the same God who can save David during times of distress. Redeemer Church, God is faithful. I say again, God is faithful. We as a church have experienced God's faithfulness in the past three years, and we have memorials to show for it. Do you have memorials in your life that remind you of God's faithfulness to you? That when he seems distant in your cry, you have reminders of his faithfulness to you? That in moments of doubt, we can look back at what God has done and be assured that he is in charge. He is holy and enthroned. Perhaps you're here today and the, at the end of the road, feeling as though you have run out of options. Cry out to God. Like David, be honest about your feelings. Yet in the midst of that, remember that God is enthroned and is faithful. Elsewhere in Psalms 23, David states, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, David's confidence is not necessarily in God taking away the source of suffering. In fact, there is little indication in this psalm that God physically, physically triumphs over David's enemies. His confidence is in verse 24. That God identifies with the suffering of his people and hears them when they cry out to him. Why do I say that? Because David is looking prophetically into the future, to the Messiah, 
Jesus Christ, who will identify with the suffering of his people. This takes us to a third point. Christ forsaken, so you are not forsaken. Psalms 22 is a messianic psalm. That is, it points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of David's prophecy. I think we will miss the point if we look primarily at Psalms 22 just within its historical context. While that's helpful, what is clear is that this psalm has a strong prophetic message about the coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ. You see, New Testament authority validates this. The Gospels and the book of Hebrews affirm the fulfillment of this prophecy. Take the Gospel of Matthew, for example. It almost seems to be a word-for-word fulfillment of David's prophecy. Psalms 22, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 7, All who seek me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Matthew 27, 39, All those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew 27, 43, He trusts in God, let God deliver him, if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Matthew 27, 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalms points to Jesus Christ as the perfect example of one who trusts in God in the face of trials and suffering. David merely foreshadows Jesus Christ. Psalms 22 is ultimately about Jesus' crucifixion, death, resurrection, and glory among the nations. Think of the time leading to the crucifixion. Jesus is betrayed by his own disciple. He's abandoned by all his disciples. He's falsely accused, denied by Peter. He's beaten. He's condemned to be hung on a tree. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is forsaken by those closest to him. Yet he doesn't cry to God as being forsaken during that period. He is deeply sorrowful. Yet while on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he cry out in such anguish? It is not because he's been surrounded by strong enemies, even though they played a role in his crucifixion. He cries out because he has never experienced a lack of fellowship with God the Father. Jesus has always been in communion with God the Father 
since eternity past. Martin Luther had this to say, Christ himself suffered the dread and horror of being distressed conscious that tasted eternal wrath. It was not a game or a joke or play acting when he said, thou hast forsaken me. For then he felt himself really forsaken in all things, even as a sinner is forsaken. Calvin explained Christ's descent into hell. He says, hell means God's forsakenness. And the descent took place during the hours of the cross. It is difficult for us to fully comprehend Christ being forsaken. David felt forsaken, but was never really forsaken in the same way that Christ was forsaken. The Tutsis in Rwanda might have been forsaken, and as catastrophic as that event was, their being forsaken pales in comparison to what Christ experienced on the cross. Why will God the Father forsake God the Son? God is holy and enthroned, David says. This means that he does not tolerate sin. Yet on Christ, while on the cross, our sin was placed on him. For our sake, he made him to be seen who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. You see, all of us are sinners. The Bible depicts us born into sin that we have a sinful nature and disposition. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the just punishment for sin is death. Eternal death. This is a bad state of affairs. And yet this holy God, in his great mercy and love, reaches out to us. In the passage that Brad referred us earlier from Hebrews 2, we see Jesus Christ humbling himself and taking a place lower than the angels. That through suffering of death by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone and bring many sons to glory. This Jesus became a worm, scorned by mankind and despised by people. He was mocked and derided and ultimately crucified. You see, crucifixion was the most horrible and dehumanizing form of death ever invented. And yet this innocent man who had lived a life of perfect obedience was subjected to this death. That was our death. We deserved it. He did not. And on that cross, when our sin was heaped on him, and God the Father looks at him and sees him bearing our sin, he forsakes him. He hides his face from him. Furthermore, waves and waves of the wrath of God is born on him as he became sin for us. That was too much for Christ to bear. 
He had never known abandonment from God the Father. He was forsaken. And that's why he cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that we are not forsaken. If we repent of our sins and believe what Christ has done on the cross, that he took on our sin and our shame and he died in our place, then he can deliver us from the power of death. Jesus Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. If you're here today and have never trusted Jesus for salvation, I implore you to repent of your sin and turn to him in belief. Salvation is a free gift by faith alone. We can never work for it. Christ already worked for us on the cross. And for those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, you see what he has done is that he brings us into the family of God. We are now brothers with Christ. This results in praise, not just from us, but from all the nations. Our last point, praise from all nations. What is the implication of the gospel in our lives? In other words, how do we live our lives now that we've been saved by Christ's atoning work on the cross? I think that verses 22 to 31 provides an amazing picture of transformed lives that now live to praise and glorify God. Take the words of verse 22 which the book of Hebrews 2 directly attributes to Christ. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Christ's suffering, his bearing of a sin and shame on the cross, and his victorious resurrection that demonstrated victory over sin and death, accomplished something significant. He now calls us brothers. Can you imagine? We who are rebels and enemies of God. We who are steeped in sin and justly deserving eternal death. Are transformed by Christ's finished work to become children of God. Jesus Christ enables us to call a holy and a righteous God, Father. A relationship that was once broken by sin has now been restored in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a reason to break into praise. Praise the Lord, Redeemer Church, for what Christ has done. Do you have a reason to praise the Lord, even in the midst of suffering? If you're a believer, yes. Yes, because he has saved you. If you're not a Christian, I call you to cry out in repentance and belief, and you will have a reason to praise. David is filled with praise. He wants to tell of his name in the midst of the congregation. He is extolling Israel 
all of Israel to praise him. He wants those afflicted to seek and praise the Lord. He prophetically looks to the ends of the earth and wants them to remember and turn to God and worship before him. David's prophecy is partially fulfilled in Christ now, but will be fully fulfilled at the end of time. That's why we should proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that will result in a multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue worshipping before God. Consider the beautiful picture of praise and worship depicted in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamp, clothed in white robes with palms, branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamp. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I say to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming from a great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he, sits, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamp is in the beast of the throne, will be the shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ is forsaken so that you and I are not forsaken. Christ makes it possible from crying out to God by day and night to serving God day and night, from feeling forsaken and thinking God is distant, to being sheltered with God's presence, from being encompassed and surrounded by evildoers, to being led and protected by the Good Shepherd, from being mocked because we're delighting in God, to joining a great multitude that praises and worships God. We may feel forsaken by God when facing trials and tribulations, but we should remember that God is enthroned and never far off. That Jesus Christ was instead forsaken in our place, that we might become children of God, part of God's family. May Psalm 22 remind us that though we might suffer in this fallen world, through Christ's suffering, we can enter into eternal rest where we praise God in the great congregation.
Let's pray. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Lord, we thank you for your victory over the strong bulls of Bashan. That you, who is the Lion of Judah, defeated one who is like a roaring lion. That you demonstrated victory over evil that encircled you. Over the power of sin and death that easily entangles us. Lord, some of us are crying out to you to save us. Oh Lord, do not be far off. You alone are our help and aid. We thank you for Christ who is a faithful and merciful high priest who sympathizes with us. Lord, we pray that Psalm 22 will fuel our worship of you to proclaim your righteousness. May the nations fear the Lord and praise him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.